Hey, Risto here with George Mason University. Uh, we are here for article club number five, and we're discussing an article that talks about the practice to theory gap uh, between PEAT education and practical knowledge of teaching. Uh, the article is titled The Influence of Methods Course, of a Methods Course in Physical Education on Pre-Service Classroom Teachers' Acquisition of Practical Knowledge. Uh, this was uh, ahead of print in JTPE. It's an open access article, so you can uh, check it out. Uh, the authors are Jan Eric Romar and Magnus Ferry. And we do encourage you as listeners to engage in this conversation on Twitter using uh, the hashtag HPE Research. And today I am joined by Kevin Richards from the University of Illinois. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Risto. Self isolated. Also, we have Justin Hagel from Old Dominion. What's happening? Um, so we have the three of us today, and typically we start off uh, asking the person who chose this article why they chose this article. Uh, and since this week that was me, um, I'll start off. Uh, this article caught my eye for a couple reasons. It's based in Finland. Um, I recently visited the Finnish school system. Um, I'm Finnish. Uh, I just recorded a podcast about the Finnish school system, which is episode 82. Uh, and I teach a methods course at a university, so all the concepts kind of rolled into one, uh, made me pick this article. And so when I was looking through JTPE, I saw a lot of things that clicked with me. And one of the other things that uh, kind of connected me with this article was that I actually taught a similar course in at Cal State Fullerton, which was a elementary physical education methods course for generalist PE teachers which was a um, really fun, engaging, very different uh, uh, type of class that I teach now at Mason, which is for uh, health and PE majors for elementary methods. So uh, gentlemen, uh, chime in. Uh, what's, uh, what was your big take on this article? Were some uh, key points that you got out of it? Don't rush in all at once. Kevin, go ahead. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, similar to you, Risto, I was interested uh, in the article, you know, because I, I, I've taught pre uh, similar courses, um, uh, and uh, one of our uh, doctoral students right now who I'm supervising uh, at the University of Illinois is going to be teaching this class for us next year, uh, and, and so it's a course that's always taught, but now that it's one of my doctoral students that's getting involved, I'm a little bit more interested, a little bit more keyed into it, um, and, and, you know, I don't really think that there's a robust enough literature out there related to pre-service classroom teachers acquisition of physical activity and physical education knowledge um, because they're it's very common across every university that i've ever been at at least where they take a course like this in preparation for the possibility that they may have to teach uh, physical education um, as part of their duties you know not not everywhere in the world not everywhere in the u.s even um, has physical education specialists at the elementary level um, but I don't think we know a, a whole lot about their experiences learning this information. You know, think about elementary education majors, they might be coming from a very different background. They might not have that sport and physical activity inherent to who they are, if you think about it from a socialization perspective. So, you know, these might be very difficult classes for them. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of countries that do this. Ireland, Finland, Scotland, some provinces in Canada have their generalist teachers teach at the elementary level. And I just think it's a wild idea if, you know, 
if I would say right now you're, you're going to be enrolled in a 16 week class to learn how to teach music. And then in one year, I'm going to be teaching music to fifth graders. That would not turn out. We do, we do the same thing. We do the same thing with adapted physical education yes. in a lot of states. In, in Indiana, you have one adapted physical education class as part of the curriculum, and then you could become an adapted PE teacher with that. I, I had to get that point in before, before Justin stole it from me, which is why, which is why I cut you off. But, but, it, but the parallels are there. I mean, how, that's not a reasonable thing either. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's funny to me is like I, I read this and I never made the parallel between um, this paper and the adapted PE field. And, and I think part of the reason is that I don't think of adapted PE as a different content area than PE. Um, we, we, our goal is to teach the same stuff. I think adapted PE is more so, and, and you know, this is just my opinion, it's more so a, um, a comparison to special education, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a special education teacher, you're taking um, years of classes on various disabilities and such and how to modify and adapt curriculum from general education for your students. Um, and adapted PE, again, as you mentioned, and, and it's most of the country that it's about one class. And some of those classes are one, uh, three credits, some have a lab. Um, there's, there's a whole bunch of uh, variability when it comes to what those classes look like. But um, yeah, but yeah I, I would say that's a more, a more, at least in my opinion, a more uh, logical comparison. Now here, so I, I read this and I'm thinking about the system where perhaps um, classroom teachers are teaching PE and my immediate thinking is that here in the United States, especially people who've come up through an American um, pre-service program will, would like immediately get defensive about this, right? Like I think five years ago, I'd have said, well, this is awful. This is a terrible idea. How could classroom teachers possibly know how to teach PE? But I think reading this today, the, the, the main takeaway from me, I, I really didn't get past the introduction as far as takeaways was just the idea of is would it be better for teachers to learn how to teach and simply apply um, PE content or is it really necessary for us to have all this PE content and then not really learn how to teach that content, which I would argue is mostly what happens in PE programs because we really don't have very many pedagogy classes within those programs for the most part. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> you bring up a really interesting point there, uh, Justin, and. Um, I was working on a, a book chapter last year with some colleagues that's, that's published as part of this um, uh, this edited book that uh, Hal Lawson and Ann McPhail did together. Um, and, and with Hal and Ann's kind of pushing, we developed a section in this paper where we where we looked at you know are we are we trying to recruit and educate um, teachers of physical education or physical education teachers. And so what's leading what we're trying to do? Are we, are we looking for people who want to be good teachers and physical education is the way that they do that, that's their medium? Or are we looking at getting people who are content area enthusiasts and specialists and see teaching as the way to live within that content area? I would argue in some ways uh, that currently we're doing more of the, the latter than the former. I think we're, we're recruiting a lot of people who enjoy sport, enjoy being physically active themselves, maybe had aspirations to go on and be athletes at higher levels. That didn't work out. What can you do? You can become a teacher, and then you can use teaching as a way to convey your passion for sport. Mm -hmm. Well, so, and, and what this brings to my mind is, is the structure that 
that I believe a lot of universities have, and at least two of the three universities that I've had any affiliation with have used, um, which is when it comes to um, classroom teachers or general education, there's a general education uh, program, and then you take classes within content areas. And so you would take a whole series of pedagogical classes with a bunch of um, with a bunch of other majors in different areas, and then you would essentially uh, take a branch and go to like science ed or social studies ed or foreign language ed. However, the only group, well, two two groups essentially are um, are outside of that, right? One group is special education because apparently special education starts differently and is different throughout, which. I think is an interesting um, an interesting way to go, but then the other group seems to be PE, where we're we don't take those uh, for the most part, and, and you know I don't want to say absolutes because my mind and the world both don't work in absolutes, but um, but it appears that we don't take for the most part those classes. We just go right into a PE program, and that's what we do here at ODU. Um, we're talking, and and I don't know if I agree or disagree with any of this, so I'm just make this is just an observational point, um, but we essentially are are disassociated with most of the College of Ed right from the get-go and our students are taking our classes and I believe we have one or two pedagogy classes within the program. Um, is that enough to teach how to teach or are we really just teaching what we're trying to get them to teach and why is it like that? Is it like that because that's what we value or is it like that because that's how exams are to get your teaching license later and you have to have like an unnecessary surplus of content knowledge in order to get those exams by teaching license or taking licensure uh qualification exams i don't know yeah and i think uh, yeah well i think that you know in this paper they had the the teachers the pre-service classroom teachers did not focus on what to teach but i feel like in in students that i taught it's little bit of the opposite. They're asking for, hey, I, I need to learn how to teach this. The way our program is structured at Mason is we have field and invasion games and gymnastics and dance. So we're having a lot of content that they're learning to what to teach. And then if you, you know, extrapolate this to something like uh, professional development in a school district, how often are those professional development sessions actually what or you know, how to teach something versus, hey, here's just a new thing. You look at Shape America or Vapored or Capered or something like that, you know, those are all recipe mills, essentially what the most popular, you know, sessions are is show me what to teach so I can copy what you're doing. It's not about the pedagogy. It's not that you were going to professional development to learn how to teach. It's learning what to teach, which was interesting that this this paper was opposite of that. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, <clears throat> sorry, uh, honestly, thinking about my own perspective, um, you know, for, for me, pedagogy has always mattered more than content. Uh, I personally feel as if, it, if, if there are certain things about content that you can learn, you can pick up on your own, you can get later. But if the pedagogy isn't strong, then you're not going to be able to convey that in a meaningful way. So in my methods courses, for example, I, I tend to focus more on the pedagogy and then the pedagogical content knowledge, of course, you know, how do we um, adjust our pedagogy given what we're teaching, but, but less so on the actual content. Yeah. And I do think I'm, I'm blessed to be able to look at this from the outside as well, because I, I, again, as people who have heard me talk on this podcast before, I don't consider myself a Pete 
person necessarily, I would say I'm on the periphery of PEAT. Um, but even within the adapted PE world, we very seldom say how you teach anything. It's here's the modifications or accommodations that you're going to use to take whatever somebody else is teaching and modify for the kids that you work with, um, which is also like just fascinating to me that that's the position we come from, even though we're I don't know if we come from a place of actually adding anything other than reacting to what somebody else does. And so largely my, my, uh, the field of adapted PE has been reactionary to the field of PE, um, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And we spend all this time in, you know, our, our, our courses during PE programs focusing on, you know, how to, how to developing proficiency or some facsimile thereof. Uh, across a variety of different movement forms with our PEAT majors. Uh, and I just, I question the utility of that, you know, when you could use those credit hours and retool them to, to, to increase pedagogical knowledge and, and, and teaching experience. But, but that's just, that, that's just my take. Yeah. But, but the question is like, why do we do it this way? Right. And I, and I think a lot of the reason we do it the way that we do it is because there are people influencing what we teach and how we teach it at the university level and i think largely it's accreditation bodies and so like for us you know our state still has questions on our uh, licensure exams about biomechanics right about like things that and, and i'm not saying biomechanics doesn't have a place but when there are more questions on biomechanics and ex exercise physiology than there is on how to teach a child with a particular disability or pedagogy in general I think maybe maybe that's showing the alignment of um, of the values of where where we live. Yeah. And so, how many uh, pedagogy courses do you each have in your PEAT program? Like true pedagogy courses, not specific like activity courses that you're teaching. Well, uh, part of the problem here, Risto, to not not to dodge your question, but part of the problem. And I'm going to speak more generically rather than just to, to my specific experience at Illinois, but across most of the programs with which I've been involved, we really only have our majors for two years. And, and really in that two year period, it's only really a year and a half because the second semester, second year is student teaching. So you've got three semesters essentially. Um, within that three semester period, the best way that I've seen it done is in, again, in my opinion, um, our concurrent um, elementary and secondary methods courses, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, in, the, in, in the, yeah, no, concurrent elementary and secondary methods courses across that whole first year. So you have elementary methods one, secondary methods one, elementary two, secondary two. Then um, third semester, you have like a capstone field experience that's like prolonged. They're out there for a, a larger period of time. They get to build relationships with kids, et cetera. Um, and then uh, you have student teaching the last semester in terms of a pedagogy, in terms of how we can structure those methods courses across a curriculum. Now, uh, at other places where I've been, we've had basically, you know, only one or two real true methods courses. And what about you, Justin? Oh, man, I don't have the damnedest idea. I mean, and, and it's partially, again, because I'm, I'm, in my own world, like, you know, I'm, I'm active within our undergraduate P program, but for me to say that I know everything that's going on within that program would be 
would be a lie. You know, I, I live in a bubble and I'm the first one to admit I live in my bubble and I love my bubble, but you know, very seldom do I uh, get involved in things outside of my bubble. So Kevin, you don't see a true freshman comes in. You don't see a true freshman year one, you wait until their junior year until you uh, have them in your classes. Yeah, at, at multiple places where I've been, <clears throat> that's that's kind of been the setup. And the reason for that from, you know, and, and, but that's different than my undergrad training. So with, with my undergrad program at Springfield College, we were in, I was working with kids, uh, elementary age kids on basic movement patterns in, in the field, one-on-one, -on -one, first semester freshman year. I took instructional strategies with Stephen Kuhl on 7.30 a.m. Monday morning, uh, first semester freshman year. <clears throat> and um, it was the, the program was distributed across all four years of my undergraduate degree. Now, at, at other places where I've been, though, we only get them <clears throat> first semester junior year. And before that, they may take like a, a content course or something like that, but they don't start the methods progression until junior year. And the reason that they that they go about it that way is that oftentimes um, you see a lot of students who transfer into physical education from something else. So they might start, you know, thinking that they're going to be an athletic trainer, take a couple of those courses, realize it's not for them, have this epiphany, come to us. It also allows for community college transfers and for students who are in, like, um, at Illinois, we call it the Division of General Studies. It's basically undecided, trying to figure out what they want their major to be. It facilitates it better for them. But this is us being reactionary to the fact that we don't have enough students who want to come into our program for semester freshman year. Yeah. And I mean, at Mason, we have probably two first time freshmen, like most, I think 95%, 90% of our students are community college transfers. We do have a, a four year cycle where you would start with those field innovation games and, you know, pedagogy 101 for PE kind of level courses. Um, in year one, two, and then they go through, and that's ideal. But again, that's not the majority of our of our students. So we are by default in the same place where we have them for two, two and a half years, and everything's crammed in. And I think that that's that's the difference yeah. between other other countries. Like you know, you look at Finland; they have five years. You start with pedagogy classes year one, you do a research project, you get a master's degree, you have extensive field experience, you take research methods courses in undergrad, you do action research, and you become a reflective teacher that knows how to learn and knows how to teach. And, you know, they, even in this course, they talked a lot about, you know, being a reflective teacher, and that's one of the biggest parts that they were trying to teach more than content it was learning how to how to reflect yeah yeah it, it, you're right um but but in the, in the states you know we have and i'm, I'm not sure about how the, the 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 college progression works in other countries necessarily but in the states we have these idea of, of cores and so you have like a university academic core and then within that you have to uh, have department core classes and sometimes college core classes. And so your credit, and, and then they cap the number of credits that can be uh, into a, a degree program, at least in a lot of states. Uh, I think in Indiana, it was capped at 120 when I was there. But, um, you know, you're cramming a lot in, uh, into a four-year period, uh, and it dilutes the amount of courses that our students can actually take mm -hmm. in physical education. So that's part of the problem. 
The other part of the problem is, I think, uh, connected to the recruitment crisis that we see, the recruitment crisis of, of bringing new students into peak programs. Um, and so we do things like push our degree program to last two years because that offers more flexibility and makes it more attractive for transfers rather than targeting the students coming straight into our programs first because, frankly, in a lot of places, there just aren't enough of them. I, you know, I, I, my undergrad was a four-year program. I know that there are others that are four-year programs. And I wonder if, if this kind of shift to a two-year program is really reactionary to, to all of this recruitment issue. Yeah, it's funny, like when I, when, I, when I read this as well, talking about this five-year model where they end with a master's degree, yep. it, it made me appreciate more um, the New York State uh, licensure um, requirement of having a master's degree. And so you do your two years of general ed studies and your bachelor's, you have your two years within a PE program, and then another one or two years for a master's program. And so like perhaps adding that master's degree requirement in New York and a few other states do that as well. Um, yeah. Something that's helping us keep up with um, other countries. And I mean, I, I think my undergrad was, you know, at, at the college at Brockport, I think my undergrad was, was just fine and, and I, I enjoyed it and I feel like I learned a good deal, but I don't think I learned enough to teach until I had went through my master's program. I think that's really where the change occurred um, for me, where I went from like, you know, uh, meathead wanting to play sports with kids all day to like person who is thoughtful or more thoughtful, maybe not thoughtful, but more thoughtful and attempting to like do what's best for children and teach in a way that um, it meets their needs. I don't think I could have done what, and I, I mean, I don't think I was a wonderful teacher. I think I was an adequate teacher um, in schools, but I don't think I would have been adequate had I not had those extra two years. Yeah, and we have, uh, in Virginia, we have a um, five-year program, essentially, for all generalist teachers to get their master's degree. And this year, they changed it and they reduced the master's degree qualification. So you no longer have to get a master's degree. You get a four year okay. degree and then you can get an optional master's. Yeah. So I, I find it super interesting that, you know, they're, I mean, obviously they're doing it for a reason. They need to recruit more teachers. They need to kind of reduce the, the entry into it so we can get more teachers out. Um, I, I wonder when that's going to come back. And it hadn't been for PE. So PE was always um, just pretty much open, right? So physical education was at the undergraduate level always, and then you could get a master's degree, but you didn't have to. Whereas the rest of education was at the master's degree, which now has been dropped down to the undergraduate. That's really, that's a really interesting form of marginalization. Yeah. And it was... Um, Math, uh, it was, um, I almost said math. Um, it was art and music and PE were at the undergraduate level. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting. And I think that, you know, as, as we've, I think, talked about on other podcasts that you and I have done together, Risto, um, you know, we're, we're in the midst of this, you know, what I referred to as before as being a recruitment crisis in physical education, but that's mirrored across education. Um, and what, what I see happening uh, are, are the opening of these kind of backdoor uh, ways to, to kind of circumvent teacher education to get people licensed quicker, uh, reducing requirements um, to make it 
to facilitate access. So, you know, getting rid of the master's degree requirement. Um, and, and essentially, we're, 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 we're creating this, this process where we're opening the gates a little bit to, to who has the ability to come into teaching and how they do that. Um, but not necessarily because we think it's a good thing to do, but because we're reacting to the fact that we can't get enough teachers otherwise. So this is really connected to this larger social problem where, you know, teaching is not viewed as being as an attractive, as attractive of a career as it used to be, at least it seems. Yeah. And I think the, the format is just very different. And, you know, I think the requirement in New York where you had to get a master's degree within a certain time. I think, I think that's healthy. Like, I think a lot of people are what, what Justin was kind of talking about uh, in your first four years when you're 18 to 21, 18 to 22, you're a very different reflective teacher candidate. And then you get out and you start teaching a little bit and then you're forced to go back and get a master's degree to keep your licensure. So then you go in and actually look at your profession in a very different light. And, you know, I, I've loved having our online master's degree. It's, you know, engaging with different teachers in a different way, but they are bringing in experience into their teaching and they're now reading research maybe for the first time and really starting to do action research projects that are engaging and interesting. And they're, they're definitely looking at their profession in a different light. And I don't think I would have looked at my profession in that light at 21 or 22. So. Yeah. Well, you know, and that, and that bring that, that kind of signals a larger issue in, in the way that we do education in this country, because we expect 18 year olds to, to be able to put a pin on a map and say, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, and then, you know, it, once you kind of get through that initial college education phase and you, uh, you know, either choose the career that, that you, you uh, intended to pursue or end up pursuing something else, then in a lot of ways you're locked into that area because you don't really have the skills to make a lateral move and people don't have the finances or the time to go back and get another college degree. Uh, so there's some larger problems with how we how we conduct education in that way in this country that are, are I think beyond the scope of what we're talking about here, but they're relevant. Yeah, no, absolutely relevant. Um, I think one of the one of the interesting things that I got out of this was the didactical milestones. It was this assignment that they had where you know students are writing down or reflecting on you know these thoughts or theories or philosophies that you know should or could guide or direct their future work as a PE teacher. So it was them just reflecting and they had hundreds of these. But I, I kind of look at this and I'm like, I might steal this for my class because it's such an interesting way for them to like, it wasn't you have to write down 10 every single day. It was, you know, writing a few down of what are very key things that you're going to take out of this class that are directly going to impact practice and um, you know, I, that was the majority of the data collected in the group. But I, I just found that that was that was an interesting way to think about it. But again, it shows how that class was formed specifically, not necessarily to teach what to teach, but it was for them to learn how to reflect. And I think if you can teach that, and it made me second guess how much focus I'm putting in on reflection and I am, but I'm also not doing it every single day in, in these assignments or in these types of uh, 
kind of like probes that they were doing every single week. So that was, that was interesting. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's really, um, it's really interesting. Uh, the, those, uh, those probes that you're talking about, they, they kind of make me think a little bit about like critical incident reflections that, that we do with uh, majors in, in our program. And that, that, you know, I, I think I picked up when I was at Alabama uh, and just asking them at the end of a field experience day. So while, when they're walking off the floor after teaching, you put a slip of paper in their hand and say, what was the most critical event that happened to you today? It could be a positive thing or it can be a, a challenge that you, that you encountered. And, and the idea is that you get that kind of visceral right in the moment. This is how I'm feeling. Yeah. Um, for data collection, it's wonderful because you get really good kind of narratives from these students as they're walking off the floor, experiencing those emotions before they kind of reframe themselves. Um, but, but for them, I think it's a really powerful way for them to kind of get out and say, stop and think about either this was a great thing because of X or I had this major challenge with that. Um, but yeah, things like this where you can get them to kind of stop and reflect and, um, you know, prevent them from just going through the motions because that's where I think it becomes a problem. If they just start going through the motions where they get to the school, sign the book, go teach their lesson leave and then go on to their lives without ever really stopping and thinking about what they're experiencing and why that's problematic yeah and i think that the most reflection that they get is when that uh cooperating teacher is there supervising with a purpose or their university supervisor is there supervising with a purpose and then they force them to re reflect i think that happens but it's the it's the other part. It's the you know sixty other days that there is nobody there really forcing you to reflect. And I think if you can instill that in that teacher, it's going to be a completely different you know student teaching experience. Yeah, and I think that, that can also set up you know if you if you emphasize reflection in a variety of different ways. Uh, throughout a teacher education program, then hopefully what you're doing is helping these students develop reflection as part of their practice. So as a core part of who they are as a teacher, so that then when they get out in schools and they start teaching, again, you prevent them from going through the motions and just doing business as usual so that they're consistently looking to, you know, investigate and question and improve their practice. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say the last thing that I'll bring up on this article is, uh, I thought the article highlighted really well how important it is to tell the same message across multiple classes. And I think it came out in the data when they, you know, the teachers didn't focus on what to teach. They t focused on student-centeredness. Uh, student they focused on um, how to facilitate student learning. And they said that it was because they had that other model where they had already taken a bunch of pedagogy courses. And it made me kind of reflect on, you know, what is what is the message that we're sending across all of our classes? And I think this has come up in um, issues of social justice with Jenna Walton Fassett, who's talked about how, you know, different different schools have different programs. Some of them have one single social justice class, but it might not be as meaningful as all teachers teaching all classes, bringing that together. Um, I think that's the same thing with adapted physical education. If you are uh, having one adapted physical education course versus having all teachers always remembering how would you modify this for a different population. And it just kind of made me think that what is, what is the, 
And how do you do that with a bunch of different faculty that have the right to do and right to teach however they want to teach? How can you, you know, mold that, you know, and, I, and I'm not sure if that happens across different universities. Is that, you know, if you leave Springfield College, you know this. Or if you leave Stanislaus State University, you know sport education. Or, you know, it's it's not, you know, I, I don't know. Do you, do you feel like the colleagues that you have or the universities that you've been affiliated with, do you think that there's uh, a synchronous kind of thing or like a sequenced vision that's coming across every single class? It's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've thought about this a little bit in relation to socialization uh, in, in terms of how we construct PEAT programs. Um, and what I typically say when I'm talking about the focus of PEAT is that it's contextually bound to the particular program that you go through. And different programs necessarily um, uh, emphasize different things in part because of the tradition, but also because of the socialization of the faculty who are there. So at Alabama, for example, we did two things, or three things, I guess. TPSR, um, uh, skill teams approach, and sport education. Um, I did TPSR and skill teams. I got my TPSR through Michael Hemphill and the relationship I had with him, and skill teams was the focus of my undergraduate program at Springfield. And Oleg, um, did his PhD with Peter Hasty at Auburn, and so he's a big sport ed guy. So our program was reflective, not necessarily about of, not necessarily our students' needs or what we thought our students' needs were, but more about our comfort and our interests. And I think that that's the case at a lot of PEAT programs. And that doesn't mean that those things that doesn't mean that those things are are, are incompatible. I think that sometimes faculty interests meet students' needs. You have that point of interest convergence, and that's a really special thing. Um, but I also would venture to guess that there are some contexts in which faculty members do what they want without necessarily thinking about whether or not it's what's best for the students or their voice or the students' voices, getting the students' voices into that process. Now, within a particular PEAT program, I, I think that you have degrees of coherence or what in socialization theory we might call um, a shared technical culture where you have a group of people who come together and agree on the basics of what it takes to be a good teacher and the process of, of learning to do that you know broadly stated mm -hmm. um, I, I in a lot of other and I think in some other environments though we've become so siloed that even within a program area I don't really know how you're teaching your courses and you don't really know how I'm teaching mine. And we just kind of go on our uh, parallel paths without really ever having meaningful conversation. Now, the, the contrast to that is, is how um, uh, Matt Kurtner-Smith told me things were when he first got to Alabama. When he first got there, he sat down with the, the other Pete faculty member and they basically made a list of everything that they thought should be in the PEAT program. And they came to consensus. And they even agreed on terminology, like they called them skill themes instead of, or uh, skill cues instead of teaching points. So that across all the classes, it was skill cues, skill cues, skill cues, even though one of them had previously used teaching points. Um, and, and that's really a shared technical culture. And it's some compromise, it's give and take on everybody's part to come up with this is the pot of material that we all agree 
should be in this program, and we're going to collectively advance that vision. Yeah, and that's, I mean, we're, we're doing that at Mason now with, um, you know, we've started having, you know, we were meeting once a month, essentially having these longer, longer meetings, and we realized that we need to meet twice a month. And we're going through one syllabus every single meeting to look through and go through the objectives and look at what do we want to teach in our program? Where are we covering all of these important things? Are they getting sequenced? If they take this course first before the next one, do they have enough basic understanding to get to that next course? And I think accreditation does that a little bit. It forces you to map out certain things, but you know, if you're getting accredited by Kate, that's so much on a bigger scale. They're not talking about model space practice or certain different, uh, you know, integrating certain research in. And I think that that's been a really good sit down. We sit down with the whole entire faculty and we're talking about what is the lesson plan template and how is it, uh, you know, across from the very first time they see a lesson plan template. What is the terminology that's being used and what does it look like and how can we make sure that say is consistent even though all these different teachers have background in teaching different lesson plan templates. You know, I had a different one in in Fullerton and I threw it out the window and I'm like, I'm gonna adopt whatever you have in this program. I'm not gonna come in and say, no, during my class, you're gonna teach this lesson plan template because that's what I know. Yep. Yeah, you're right. And, and I think that that's a very good example of how Pete faculty can make decisions that are in the best interest of the students rather than their own self-interest. You know, coming to consensus on one lesson plan format uh, gives the students consistency across the program. There are no surprises. You don't have to figure something else out. It gives them one solid example that maybe just maybe they'll continue to use once they leave. Um, and, you know, as an individual Pete faculty member, that might not be the most comfortable decision for me because I have a different lesson plan that maybe I like better, mm-hmm. but this is what's the best interest of the students. Yeah. So getting together and using one template, I think makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah, absolutely. Hey man, uh, I appreciate your time. I think we've covered uh, a lot of things not included in this article, but I think we've also covered some, some things included in this article. So. Uh, appreciate you uh, coming on, and we'll uh, we'll catch uh, Justin on the uh, on the next one. Thanks. Yep. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.